When we finished chapter 20 of 2 Kings toward the end of last year, we finished Hezekiah's reign. He was the best king that Judah had since King David. We studied his spiritual reforms and his faith-filled leadership. He was a man of, of solid character who led Judah to keep their covenant with God. We studied how God was faithful to his covenant with Judah. That's the, that's the whole theme of 2 Kings is covenants and character. And, and we had a good one finally from a king. God's always been faithful to his, but we had a good one finally from a king. But we know that even though God protected them and blessed them during this period of faithfulness, that God's blessing doesn't stay on them, right? This book is being read by exiles in Babylon who had experienced God's judgment. So it, of course, brings up the question from someone who's not an exile, well, what happened? Things were good. Well, Hezekiah's son happened, Manasseh. Manasseh would reign longer than any king in either the south or the northern kingdom, but he was the most wicked king in Judah's history. And the writer, it's interesting, Manasseh's story is larger than what this writer records, but he doesn't he doesn't tell the end of Manasseh's story, and he doesn't give the full story. He only tells this, he records the ugliness of Manasseh's reign to serve as a warning to his audience, to the exiles. He says, this is what you followed. This is why you are where you are. And this is what you must turn away from to be restored from the Lord. So chapter 21 serves as an ugly warning to all of us of the dangers of being deceived. So chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. Now, I'm not, I mean, I'm getting there as I get older, the get off my lawn kind of mentality. But I'm generally not there. I am highly connected, you know, to my kids, and, and, and I, I try to keep up. You know, the lingo changes so fast now. I don't know if it changed that fast when I was younger, but, like, I'll finally kind of grasp a phrase, and then I'll use it here, and they're like, Dad, no one says that anymore. I'm like, they said it, like, three months ago. Come on. I'm generally, I, I love being around young people. I, I will say that it, it is funny being a 49-year-old man now and, and thinking and looking at some things young people do and go, that's, that's bizarre. And, and thinking people my age, when I was that age, probably thought that about me. But I don't have a negative attitude towards young people. I do think it's interesting that Israel's worst king started when he was 12. They might say, well, Josiah was a good king and he was eight. Yes, but he had influences in his life that were really helpful to him, and Manasseh doesn't. And, and so a 12-year-old on their own, I think you're asking for trouble with very rare exceptions. I was reading that the UN, no, not the UN, it's another similar type of group, it might be the UN, but they've formed a, basically a voice of, that can come to the UN and they share their concerns, and it's made up of teenagers. And I just thought, you know, I don't think that's what Jesus meant when he said, when his kingdom is here, a child will lead them. And again, I'm not speaking down. I think we need to be open. Some of the best corrections at times in my life have come from my kids. You know, not meaning to be correcting, but just they'll say something and you go, ooh, they're right. That hurts. I need to repent. But I don't, this is way, not even in my notes. Uh, anyway, 
I do think the trend to somehow devalue those who have had some life experience and to overvalue youth in particular, extreme youth in our day and age, I don't think that's ever healthy for uh, a society. I think when you see those things happen in a society, you get the solemn, uh, the Rehoboam effect, right? Where he didn't listen to any of his dad's counselors, but only to his peers. I think the Bible is very clear that while age doesn't guarantee wisdom, the Bible says it's foolish to not listen to those who have more life experience than you do. I don't know if that's what Manasseh did or not. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Manasseh's name means forgetting. And perhaps Hezekiah named him that because, well, now he'd be able to leave behind the horrible situation we saw in the previous chapter when Isaiah confronted Hezekiah when he got his terminal illness, and he said, get your house in order because you're not going to live through this. And Hezekiah's thinking, how do I get my house in order? I don't have a son. Perhaps now he's thinking when he next faces death, he would have a successor. And I can forget those days where I really wasn't trusting the Lord in this area. Kids are interesting. Parents are even more interesting. Have you ever considered how heartbreaking it must have been to be Adam and Eve and your oldest son is Cain? Cain's name means, I've gotten the man from the Lord. What do you mean you've gotten the man from the Lord? doesn't mean we had a boy. That's not what she's saying. Remember the Lord came to her and said, your seed will crush the serpent's head. Eve saw Cain as the promised Messiah who could crush Satan and restore the world. I don't know Eve's heart, but it's hard for me not to see the naming of Cain as the Messiah as a self-centered, unrealistic, and unbiblical expectation. I mean, how do you live up to that? God had a plan for Cain's life that was independent of all of Eve's troubles. And Cain clearly had too many of his own struggles to be the answer to all his mom's problems. However, we can look at that now, and yet I see parents do that still sometimes. I see a mom who looks to her kids to be the answer to the loneliness in her bad marriage, or a dad who looks to find the thrill of success through his child rather than live with the regret of his own failures. We find similar names when you look at all the children that Jacob had with all his wives. Like, could you imagine if your name was this? You're like, you're like, hey, everybody, you know, introduce yourself at class today. And you're like, hi, I'm Bob. Hi, I'm Joe. Hi. Uh, my name means that my mommy purchased my daddy for the night because there's always infighting in the family, and, uh, and she got to sleep with him that night, and I came from that. Okay, who's next? That whole family was such a mess. Like all these kids, they grew up like, what's your name? I'm tired of answering that. My name has to do with my mom being lonely. My name has to do with my mom being dissatisfied. My name has to do with my mom being angry. My name has to do with my mom finally getting back at her, her competitor. My name has to do with the fact that my mom's not gonna be my real mom. Because my mom was just brought in because this woman couldn't have any more children. Now, sometimes we see in the Bible that names are given associated with a person's life, but they're a good thing. For example, Joseph named his first child the same name here, Manasseh, 
as a sign that God had rescued him from the awful circumstances he'd been in to the point that he didn't even remember those horrible days anymore. It's almost like every time he saw his son, he's like, son, you're proof that, that God is good. You're proof that God is faithful. That's not a bad reason to name your kid forgetting. Maybe that's why Hezekiah named his son by the same name. I don't know. God's given me a second chance. You're, you remind me that God's given me a second chance. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. I don't know why Hezekiah named him what he did. But I do know this. A child's purpose is never to fix their parents' problems or a marriage's problems. Children are a blessing from God to be enjoyed simply because they were given to you. Now, as a parent, I get it. You know, everything's not all happy bundle joy, right? You go to their mom and she's like, you're, you've lost your mind. There's times when you're just tired. There's times when you're not spiritual. I get it. It's much easier being a grandpa. <laughs> everything's happy. They're a blessing. And you see that when you get removed just another step from it. Children are to be loved and trained up so that when they're loosed into the world as an adult, they will be a God-fearing, responsible member of society. And if you're a parent tonight, don't forget that. Check your needs at the door. I think one of the most eye-opening things, I, my kids have all been great. Like, if I were to ever talk to about my kids' problems, some of you would think, you're just a, a whiner, and I am. But like, there were those times at different phases in life. Pretty much all of them, when they hit 10, it's like, I'm pretty sure you're not making it to 11. And then when I had my first teenager, Joel was an incredible child, incredible young man. But I made a lot of our conflict and a lot of the challenges of parenting a teenager about me. I remember Beverly kept trying to get me to read a book. And I didn't want to read it. I was just frustrated and blah, 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 and he just needs to do this and blah, blah, blah. She's like, you really need to read this book. I'm like, yeah, whatever. And I finally read it, and the reason she wanted me to read it is because it's all about confronting the heart, a parent's heart. And, and it, the first like two, three chapters is about you need to deal with your heart. One of the things I hear from parents more than anything is like, they need to respect me. You're right, but not because you deserve respect. Now that's a very subtle distinction that you can easily deceive yourself about. You can very easily deceive yourself from, my child needs to learn to respect me because God's going to bless him for that, or he needs to respect me, right? There is a difference. And so one side is looking for the glory of God, is looking for their well-being to loose them into the world as a responsible God-fearing adult, and the other side is looking for what? Me. It's all about me. And so reading through those first three chapters, I was confronted with my own pursuit of either my, what I considered my needs or my desires, whatever they might be. No matter how noble they might sound, they were still about me. So if you're a parent, check your needs at the door. Lay down your life for your kids. Teach them. Discipline them, even though it might be uncomfortable or tiring. 
serve them and teach them to serve others, starting with their siblings and friends. I will hear parents from time to time excuse evil behavior in children as, oh, well, kids will be kids or boys will be boys. No. <laughs> if, if you take that mentality, if you tolerate selfishness or unkindness for even a moment, if you adopt the mentality that kids will be kids, then that's what you'll end up loosening unto the world. An adult-sized kid who never learned to say no to themselves or to treat people correctly. Now, I don't know what kind of father Hezekiah was. The Bible doesn't tell us. The writer only informs us that Hezekiah didn't get many years to influence his, his son before he became sick again because he started his reign when he was 12 years old, which means he was born three years after Hezekiah recovered from his illness. So only 12 years to influence this kid. It's my personal belief that if you don't grab hold of your child's heart, by the time they hit five, you have a very uphill battle in front of you. If you have young kids, give them clear boundaries early on and discipline them consistently. Now, when I say that, I don't say you have to discipline them like I did or like some other parents did. That's not my point. Or you need to have the same boundaries that we gave for our kids. Or That's not my point. My point is whatever you as parents decide are going to be the boundaries for your kids, be consistent with it. People say, well, you know, you guys didn't let them do this. We don't agree with you on that. I don't care. Your kids, not mine. I'm going to do what God tells me to do with my kids. You do what God tells you to do with yours. Just be biblical. But whatever you decide to do together, be consistent then about it. Here's the boundaries. They don't move. And when, they move, when you move beyond them, there are consequences. Every time, without fail. No mercy. No, obviously there are opportunities for mercy. But the point is, you need to be consistent. They need to know that it's mercy. We have a saying with our kids, and it's this. You know what I have to do right now, right? Like, I don't tell them what I'm going to do. I say, you know what I have to do right now, right? <laughs> One of my sons is laughing because <laughs> he's heard me say that a thousand times. <laughs> we made it clear. The boundaries were clear. You've crossed the boundary, so now what do I need to do? Do, 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 do. Here's the iPad. All right. Give them clear boundaries early on. Discipline them consistently. Because otherwise you're training them that you're only saying no because at that moment you don't want them to do something. And it could be for a thousand different reasons. You're not, you're not telling them no because, well, this is a boundary or, or biblical principle or just a family principle, something you feel strongly about as a family. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. So he turned that into a parenting message? Yes. David Guzik said, a long career or longevity is not necessarily evidence of the blessing and approval of God. Manasseh exemplifies that truth as we'll see in verse 2. It mentions his mother's name was Hephzibah. Uh, her name means my delight is in her. And one would be tempted to think, wow, those parents really loved her. But that's not what her name is for. Her name has ties to the city of Jerusalem that God has delight in, Jer in his city, his people. That God's eye was on the city of Jerusalem and his people who lived there, and they brought him joy. You know, 
Manasseh was born into a family where his dad loved the Lord. His mom's named after God found joy in his people and in the city he's born in. He had the perfect situation. But sadly, Manasseh would be the reason God had to judge the people he loved. For it says in verse 2, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did it after in other words, his pattern was after the abominations of the heathen. In other words, like you look back at Judah's history, they had bad kings. They had some really good kings, but they had some bad kings. And what the writer's saying here is he didn't follow the pattern of the bad kings of Judah. He was like the Canaanites that God judged. He was followed after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out in front of the children of Israel. The word abominations there, it means behavior that is repulsive. Now, the writer is going to list all those repulsive behaviors in verses 3 through 9, but before we get into those things, I mean, it just really does beg the question, like, why would you go like dark mode? Why would you go that opposite direction completely compared to your dad? I mean, Hezekiah had been the best king Judah had ever had. How does Manasseh fall so far from the tree? I think our natural response when we see a kid grow up and do evil things is to presume bad parenting. And maybe Hezekiah was a bad dad. David was a good king, but he's a bad dad. And parents certainly do influence their children, whether it's for good or bad. However, the truth is that regardless of a person's family life, every human being makes their own choices. It's why amazing people can come from awful parents. That's why awful people can come from amazing parents. Sometimes I've had people tell me their story, and I'm like, oh my goodness, how? Like, how did you, I mean, you, you're just a shining example of what we're supposed to be as a believer. Like, how? How with all the obstacles you faced? But then you have other situations where you also say how. They had everything. Manasseh made his decisions, and he alone is responsible for them. So however good of a dad and mom he had, you can't, however good a dad and mom you had or didn't, you can't blame your mother or father or, or both for your bad decisions. In fact, if you want to move past your painful past, that will never happen until you own up to your own choices. Now, of course, that truth doesn't absolve us as parents. Well, they make their own choices. If there's anything I've learned as a parent, it's this. If I do not humble myself regularly, if I'm not praying to God to work on my heart regularly as a parent, if I'm not praying for wisdom regularly as a parent, if I try to do parenting on my own for even a moment, I will make mistakes that affect my kids negatively. That's why Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You know, our children don't belong to us. We are stewards. And God's command for those He loans His kids to is train them, teach them, don't provoke them to wrath. You and I must take that seriously because someday, if you're a parent, or you hope to be one someday, you're going to give an account for your faithfulness to that stewardship. Now, of course, there's the other side. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and the earth. 
If you fall into that category, you're not, you don't have kids, but you have parents, you're still under their authority, then ignoring God's command to obey them, it keeps you from becoming that God-fearing, responsible adult. And when a man or a woman enters adulthood without fearing God, they can easily turn into a Manasseh no matter how good their upbringing was. Well, what did he do that was so repulsive? Verse 3 begins the list. It says, For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he reared up altars for Baal, and he made a grove as did Ahab king of Israel, and he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. First off, he rebuilds. So it's not even like he just reopened. He rebuilds all the high places. Remember the high places, these are not pagan worship sites. These were worship sites to the Lord, but they existed in disobedience to God's commands. In other words, people are like, I really don't want to go make this sacrifice all the way in Jerusalem. Can't I just go up to the hill over there? I mean, I like that church. It's a nice place. Guy runs it. He's a great guy. Can I just do the sacrifice over here? And they had him all over the place. Hezekiah shut him down. And it's like Manasseh becomes king. He goes, hey guys, sorry for my dad, the extremist, putting you out by making you come to Jerusalem all the time. Worship how you want, folks. Business is open again. And I would urge you to beware of leaders who make following the Lord convenient rather than obedient. Secondly, he sets up, it says, altars for Baal. Second Chronicles chapter 33, verse 3 says he did it for the Baalim, which means that each city in Judah got their own personal Baal to worship. So it's like they filled out like a survey. Like, what do you want your Baal to be like? Well, we need our crops to go well, and we like having lots of kids, so can you give us that Baal? All right, there we go. And they shipped them out an idol, and an, I'm sorry, an altar, and it was tailored to whatever it is that they wanted for their personal Baal. And each of the cities had their own God they worshiped and prayed to for blessing and protection and prosperity. And then it says he, thirdly, he made a grove, just like Ahab, king of Israel. The grove here refers to the Asherah pole, which was the uh, center of the goddess Asterus worship site. That was a, well, I won't get into what it was, but it was obscene. He constructed one of those just like Ahab, the king of Israel, did. Basically, what the writer's saying here is, remember Ahab and how awful he was? Well, Manasseh was our Ahab. Not exactly something you want to see on your list of accomplishments. What did you accomplish? I grew up to be just like my, uh, my forebear Ahab. That's not what you want to be, son. But that's who Manasseh wanted to be for some reason. Let's just worship everything. And so in addition, it says he worshiped all the host of heaven and served them. The sun, the moon, stars, the sign of the zodiac. Astrology was a big part of the religious beliefs of the nations around Israel. We, of course, were to get our direction from God's Word, not the stars, right? Whatever shape they might be. God created all those celestial bodies. They have a purpose, but they can't help you beyond what God created them to do in nature. Manasseh, though, he served them. He didn't only provide them for the people to choose from, but he worshiped all of them. No God left behind. Now, that's not the worst of it. It says in verse 4 that he put some of these abominations in the Lord's temple. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, in Jerusalem will I put my name. 
And he built the altars of all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. When Solomon first built the temple, he realized, you know, you're there, you're having the opening ceremony. And as he's praying, he realizes the absurdity of the idea that a building could contain the God of all creation. Like he realizes, he goes, this wasn't well thought out. Like how does a building contain the Lord? And so he, he says, Lord, I know that like this building can't contain you. You're, you're the God of all creation, you're the God of the universe. You're omnipresent, you're almighty. But he says, Lord, even though it's an absurd idea, would you condescend and, and would you dwell in our midst? And the cool part is, God said yes. And his glory filled that temple. And so even though God can't be contained in any one location, he did make this location special. These altars to other gods weren't just repulsive acts. It was like a slap in the face. It was like saying, I know you're real, Lord. I know that you, you know, condescended to make this place special for us, but you've you need to move over a bit, make room for these other deities, that they won't make this place any special because they don't even exist. There's an application for us because the Lord dwells in our hearts, right? We are His temple. He's made us special. So do you ask God to move over or force Him to share that space with other things? I think there's always the challenge. Maybe, maybe you guys don't struggle with that. Maybe it's just me. I'm uh, I'm intense. I, uh, I, so when I like get my teeth into something, I kind of, I want to follow it to the end. We were joking about the other day, I don't know if it was in the car at home, we were somewhere and we were joking together, I think we were in the car and we were joking about what, what's the best number? And we had all sorts of interesting things. And at a certain point I just said, this is a stupid conversation. There's only one best number, one. Because if you're not first, you lost. End of conversation. Now, clearly from the conversation in the car, my flawless logic didn't appeal to them. We're all different. I'm intense. Like if I'm going to do something, I want to win. I don't want to be first loser. That's all second place is. Oh yeah, you got second place. No, that means I was this close to winning and I didn't. And sometimes when I pour myself into something, because I pour myself into it, I kind of get caught, caught up too much in it sometimes, too much emphasis. Emphasis becomes misplaced. Priority becomes misplaced. I don't mean to do it. So maybe that's just me, or maybe sometimes you find yourself asking God to move over a little bit. It's just another episode, God. (laughs) I know this may impact me getting up early to to just read my Bible a little bit before I go to work tomorrow, but just one more episode, Lord. Or sometimes we just don't talk to him at all, and we'll get back to him in a couple days. Do we ask God to move over for things that enslave us instead of bless us? People get really upset at God for his demand for exclusivity. God can't handle competition. That God sounds so selfish and petty. He just wants us all for himself. And if we were talking about a person, maybe we would understand 
and agree. But those, those arguments, they, they never keep in mind God's desire for our good. That those other things won't be good for us. He knows that. That doesn't take into account that He wants us to be blessed and He knows those idols won't do it because they're not even real. It's interesting that he, the writer mentions he put these altars in both courts, both the courts where the priests served and the courts where the offerers kind of mingled and interacted before their turn came to bring their offering. In other words, he points out that there was nowhere to escape these altars to idols. If you were coming to God's temple to worship, no matter who you were or where you were, the sun, moon, and stars were being worshiped in some way, or at least acknowledged. Again, that's not the worst of it, though. Verse 6, it says he adopted demonic religious rites. He made his son pass through the fire. Um, that's a, basically a phrase that refers to offering your son in sacrifice to the god Molech, burning your child to death. Second Chronicles 33 says Manasseh did this not just with his, one of his sons, he did it with multiple children. The practice of offering your son as a sacrifice was meant to curry Molech's favor. You've given your child to me, so I'll give you good finances or a good career or a good sex life or prosperity. And of course, children should never be sacrificed on the altar of keeping or gaining a prosperous life. Not only did he murder his kids religiously, but it says he observed times. It means he tried to divine the future by looking at omens in the sky. He used enchantments. It means to divine, try to divine the future by consulting with demonic entities. He dealt with familiar spirits. That means you trying to consult the dead for wisdom. And then he dealt with wizards, which this is not Gandalf the Grey or Harry. This is someone who would contact the dead to get information for you. So, so <laughs> it says he, he wrought more wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He just wrote much wickedness. And it's almost like Manasseh got out a Bible and he said, okay, let's read this thing and study it and make sure we do the exact opposite of everything it says. Leave no superstitious forbidden practice behind. Bring it all back, guys. He did much evil, much badness, the word means, to provoke the Lord to anger. In the same way, his dad, Hezekiah, did a lot of good for the nation. Manasseh did a lot of harm. So much that it incensed the Lord to the point where he couldn't just be merciful and give Manasseh time to change. And yet, Manasseh didn't stop there. Verse 7, later on, he defiles the temple a second time. It says, and he set a graven image, an idol or a replica of the grove that he had made in the house, in the temple. He made an, a replica of the Asherah pole that he had put in the city. He puts it in the temple. And I mentioned earlier that the Asherah pole was an offensive thing, an obscene object. It was a representation of male genitals. Imagine walking into church and seeing that. He set this replica of the grove that he had made in the house. And again, it says, of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon, his son, 
in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen, out of all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. And neither will I make the feet of Israel move any more out of the land which I gave their fathers. Only if they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. It's interesting, the writer references something God said to David and then something God said to Solomon, and then he quotes both of them. It reads like it's all one quote, but it's two different quotes from two different time periods. You see, when David decided to build the Lord a temple, he asked the prophet Nathan about it. He says, I want to build God a house. He says, he says, God's in a tent right now, and, and the tent's been attacked and captured, and all sorts of things have happened to it over the years. I want to make him a house. I want to make him a temple. And Nathan said, David, that's a great idea. Go for it. But as the prophet's leaving the palace, the Lord says, Nathan, you got to go back. You, you answered too quickly. David can't build me a temple. He's got too much blood on his hands. But the Lord was so blessed, so touched by David's desire that he didn't just send the prophet back to say you can't do it. He said, tell David this, I'm going to build you a house. He says, David, your line is going to be the line of the Messiah. Your line will be the permanent kingly line of all Israel. And I promise you, it will continue all the way down to the Messiah. Crazy thing. David was all done. He goes, Lord, that's not why I said this. He goes, ah. He didn't even know what to say. He repeats himself a couple times because he's just so flabbergasted that God would be so gracious to him. He knew he didn't deserve that. Well, the writer quotes David's words to Nathan here, 2 Samuel 7, verse 10, where the Lord told David through Samuel, moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and they'll move no more. In other words, David, I'm going to give you the blessing that you guys are going to be here for all time. I'll preserve you. I'll protect you no matter what goes on around you, and I'll keep you here so that you won't just wander aimlessly ever again like you did in the wilderness. But God's promise also contained a warning later in Nathan's words, something the writer doesn't mention here. And he said, David, if your descendants disobey me, I won't remove your bloodline, but I will judge the people, the kingdom. Well, later on, after Solomon built the temple, God said something to Solomon. He told Solomon that he would make this temple special as long as they didn't go after idols. He says, if you go after idols, though, then I'll destroy this temple and I'll remove you from the land. So two beautiful promises, but they also came with two warnings. And so the writer here reminds them of the promises and the warnings. He wants them to remember that God keeps his promises in both blessing and in discipline. Back to the parenting thing, that's something your kids need to know. They didn't know when you say that you love them and you're going to be there for them and you're not going to leave them, that you don't. You don't just walk out on them because it gets hard. Or you don't ignore them because you're frustrated. But at the same time, they need to know you mean what you mean or you promise them, if you do this, here are the consequences. Because that's how God deals with us. Now, the exiles would read this and they would go, our feet are restless but it's not because the Lord failed. It's because we turned away from Him 
because we listen to our king instead of our God. Look at verse 9. But they did not listen. They hearkened not. They didn't obey. They didn't take heed. They didn't heed the promise of blessing or the warning of judgment. And so, we look here. It says that instead they let Manasseh seduce them. They didn't listen to the Lord's word, his promise of blessing or his warning of discipline. But instead Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed, the Canaanites. Are you and I heeding God's promises of blessing? Or do we think his blessings aren't worth it? Or maybe do we go about life thinking we need to take care of ourselves? Which are you heeding? Yourself or the Lord's promises? Are you heeding God's warnings of discipline? Or do you maybe think, well, God won't discipline me, or I'm not doing as bad as others, so I'm in the clear. I mean, God's got to deal with other people first before He gets to me. Let's be those who heed God's promises, both of blessing and discipline. Amen? Let's not deceive ourselves or listen to those who tell us we don't need to heed God's promises of blessing and His warnings of discipline. The word here, seduced, it means to cause someone to hold a wrong view that eventually leads to wrong behavior. I heard someone say something that has stuck with me ever since that time, and it said this, wrong ideas lead to wrong behavior. Wrong beliefs lead to wrong behavior. It can't not be that way. Have you ever wondered how a person, though, seems to snap and become a destroyer of all the things they used to hold dear? I mean, most of us have probably seen someone do that. But have you ever wondered why? Without fail, someone always snaps because they've been listening to the input of someone who's deceiving them, who's misleading them. I mean, it could be a, a group of friends, it could be coworkers, it could be a Bible teacher, it could be a podcast host or web journalist. It doesn't matter where the source is. The point is we start listening to wrong ideas. And wrong ideas, if we keep put inputting them, they will always output. They will always produce wrong behavior. I, uh, I'm so blessed. Like, I, I lay in bed sometimes. I'm like, God, why have you been so good to me? We sang that song tonight. Uh, you know, I will, I will sing of the good, like I will... Anyway, the goodness of God. And I just thought, Lord, I, I can't think of anything else. Like, you've been so good to me. I was so blessed that as a young believer, I had this truth drilled into me. Garbage in, garbage out, right? I had it drilled into me. And so you're like, I know it's, it's, it's easy to make fun of. You know, you look back at some of the books, and the Christian books in the 80s, and it's like devils in hard rock music and stuff like that. I know that we laugh at some of the things that that age of Christianity was known for because some of them were extreme. But those ideas were rooted in a truth. They were rooted in the truth is that garbage in produces garbage. If you're going to fill your heart and mind with things that are not of the Lord, you can't be surprised when all of a sudden you're a little bit more irritated with people or why your eyes wandering when it wasn't before or why you, you, you feel like you're missing out when you didn't before. I've told this story a thousand times, but when I was working at, I was a GM for a Chick-fil-A for seven years and 
And uh, my boss, he played Z88 all the time. And, uh, and this is not a critique of them that don't hear what I'm not saying. But at the time, I have no clue if it is now because I don't really listen to the radio much, but at the time, they were a very repetitive music station. And there was a point in time where I'll work in, we're there all day, and I was like, if I hear, take the shackles off my feet one more time, I'm going to scream. I'm like, that song is like 20 years old now. For the love of God, find a new song. And all of us who were working there, we had grown up in 80s. And in my opinion, 80s classic rock is the best music ever created. <laughs> yeah, my people. So we decided we we're going to put on the classic rock station. And of course, we were having a blast. We were like, oh, I remember that song when I was a junior in high school. We were so dumb back then. We laughed. We'd sing the, you know, the catchy chorus, whatever. Think about the spandex and all the other things that were not the coolest part of music. And we were laughing and we were singing. And we're like, this is so cool. It's refreshing. We're happy at work, blah, 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 blah. None of us were having evil thoughts, all right? So what happens? Well, on the way home from work, I start listening to the same station. And then I'm driving to work one day, and I'm singing a song, and the Lord's like, I'm not okay with you singing a song about a centerfold. I was like, all the other people are like, what's a centerfold? <laughs> don't, don't Google it. And I started noticing a couple things. I was becoming more irritable, more edgy. I was antsy. And I was, had some lustful thoughts that had, were creeping in. And I was like, oh, dear God. So I, met, I mentioned to a couple of my coworkers, and I was like, hey, you notice anything kind of funky about your attitude, whatever? And like, yeah. I'm like, I think we need to change the station back to the repetitive stuff. Because <laughs> at least it's good stuff coming in most of the time. Anyway, my point of the story is you don't have to go in with bad motives to get garbage out. If you're going to listen to things that aren't true, they're not just, they're not lovely, they're not of good report, like, you know, the things that Paul says, think on these things in Philippians chapter 4, you're going to be affected by those things. And so, as a result of listening to their king instead of the Lord, the writer says the nation of Judah did more evil than the Canaanites that God had them wipe out. Wow. That's heavy. Excavations into Canaanite dwellings before the conquest of the promised land show homes riddled with the corpses of sacrificed children. Because what they would do is when they're building a new home, they would offer their child to the God and then bury the corpse in the foundation of the home to secure that God's blessing. How does a society get worse than that? Judah had. Judah did. So as we close out this ugly warning, I guess I can close with this. Who, who or what has your ear right now? Who or what has your ear right now? What is influencing you? I mean, is it the lust-focused fictional relationships on Amazon Prime and Netflix? Or is it the truths of God's Word? Is it a, a bitter divorced coworker, Or is it the godly married men and women that you interact with here? Is it the neighbor who hates their parents because they had a difficult upbringing? Or is it the people who are going to exhort you to walk with the Lord? Don't be seduced by charming people who either seem to really care about you 
or they appeal to your flesh. Don't be seduced by them, whether they be in a pulpit or they're in Hollywood or they sit at the desk next to you. Let's heed the ugly warning of Manasseh's life. Let's all stand. Lord, do you use yourself prayed? I don't pray that you take them out of the world because then they would have to leave it. You've called us to be in the world, but not of it, to, uh, you know, to, to raise our families, to love one another, and then, of course, to be a light to the world. We can't do that if we're not here. But, Lord, we don't want to be of the world. We want to be like you. So, Lord, we heed the warning of Manasseh's life. We don't want to be seduced by others. So if there are things, Lord, that we've been inputting into our hearts and our minds, I pray, that are not healthy for us spiritually, Lord, pray that you'd show us tonight if you haven't already. And then, Lord, with, with those things we say to you, we will put them aside. We don't want to be deceived or seduced. We don't want to believe that we can handle it and it won't affect us. We don't want to become someone who snaps all of a sudden and makes some mistakes, life decisions that impact us and those we love around us negatively. We want to be an encouragement and a blessing to you first and to one another. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.